Welcome back to Information Revolution, a podcast for people working with information. Uh, we've been talking last time about uh, things to do with the current state and uh, perhaps things that we'd like to see done differently. And we were really conscious when we were talking about that and planning out the next few episodes that we really want to make sure that we're not just sort of going, oh, well, here's the current state and then here's some glorious future with no uh, sort of tangible or usable uh, suggestions about things you could try out along the way. So that's where we're at today. The focus is going to be on just a few things that we think you could try right now and see how that changes the way you work. So I'm going to introduce myself first. Uh, my <laughs> name is Michael Upton um, and I'm a director <laughs> well of MetaTaxis New Zealand. Uh, I call myself an information manager and mint consultant when I can get the words out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Judy Verno and I also work for MetaTaxis and I call myself an information architect, Carl. And I'm Carl Miller as I work for Castle Point Systems in Canberra and I just try to avoid calling myself things because it just causes problems and gets me into trouble. So <laughs> I'm just here. And I just want everybody to note that we are recording this on a public holiday. So if we seem like we're a little bit uh, less crisp than usual, yes, that's correct. <laughs> so, correct. Michael, what are we here to talk about today? <laughs> well, uh, oh, I think you might want to note that uh, you're here representing yourself and your oh, opinions yes. are your own. Thank you. Yes, yes. Well, no, that, that that is good. My opinions are my own. They do not represent the views of my employer. Thank you, Michael. This one. Okay. <laughs> so talking about uh, those uh, kind of uh, small or actionable things that we could be doing right now to try out something different in our working lives. Uh, Judy, did you have mm. something to kick off with? Well, I've got, I've written several things down here, sort of from 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 big to slightly less big to small. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just uh, from something that came up recently, I was thinking that as a fairly easy, I imagine, thing to do would be to go and talk to the people who are working in your organisation around analytics. And there's bound to be some these days because no government organisation doesn't have people working in data analytics, I think. And just go and talk to them about the kinds of um, pain points that they're experiencing because I can, I can put good money on the fact that there, there will be probably around data quality, probably around um, vocabularies. But I think it would be really good to just go and listen to the kinds of problems that they have and see how you can translate that into something that could be useful in your world. I mean, I'm, I'm working exactly in that area at the moment, helping an organisation to understand what its terminology means so that they don't so that they know what this word means across all the different systems and they can spend they can they can uh, if they can crack that one and know that they're talking about the same things at the very least and use those words or at least a mapping of those words across systems they can save hours and hours of time and i th i think we noticed the a job spec didn't you notice one yeah. Michael recently um, that that was along those lines even so it, it which shows that people are beginning to think about it like this yeah for sure for sure so um the one I saw I think was actually just described as a metadata specialist uh 
and uh, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. I don't see there's any reason not to mention them. Um, and um, yeah, it looks pretty exciting to me when I was thinking about, um, you know, the, uh, sort of the direction that I hope um, our professions are going in, um, that, yeah, that there was a job out there that was basically working through those kinds of problems. Um, yeah, and I can imagine in some organisations that would be called an information architect and there might be all kinds well, of yeah internal politics as to why something might yes. get one name or another. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I've got no clue with uh, with that organisation's uh, context, but um, yeah, but I just thought it did seem really positive. It wasn't a job that was just about the management of um, well compliance measures, which is that thing we keep keep going on about. It was, mm. it was, and um, one thing I really liked is it was certainly emphasising the idea that you know it's thinking about um, information and data across the business, so it wasn't. Yeah. Um, again, you know, another thing that we we're saying it would be a good point of focus is not not thinking your work relates to one particular system or tool set exactly. right across. Yeah, mm. and I I think I think that private companies have been getting this for quite a while actually. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I I used to work in publishing and. I was once upon a time chief taxonomist for an organisation that was trying to do exactly that, uh, a large publishing company, just trying to think about how you use that terminology across business, how you're describing your assets, how can we standardise on this. Yeah, so again, as I'm always saying on this, taking that step back and looking at it across the organisation. Mm. And I mean, commercial businesses are, are actually a good model there because, you know, they hire us to manage a, a specific risk or to produce a specific gain. And they don't really care whether the data is structured or unstructured or what system it's in. They want the risk managed. And it's, you know, I think that clarity of thinking is really helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, either the risk managed or a way to produce better outputs. mm so, so both sides of that, really, kind of managing the negative, but also Producing contributing the to the positive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I feel like throwing so, in the thing that I always kind of want to throw in in this situation, which is that, you know, I, I think government, um, we necessarily uh, manage records of, you know, vulnerable and at-risk people. And that I do think there's a kind of a heightened... Um, I'd say an obligation, but, you know, like a, 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 another aspect there that is not about business efficiency at all, but is about protecting people's... Um, it's about effectiveness, and, mm -hmm. isn't it? You know, yeah, the effectiveness right, is entitlements. Yeah. But, yeah, but it still, still comes down to, you know, working effectively. And even if, you know, your goals are kind of in that direction rather than let's make lots of money, it's still, you know, how can we, yeah, how can we work well um, and how mm. can we be organised? You know, I still think it's a really, really sensible frame to, to position all of that in. But I just I mean, want to put that out there because you know, not I, I, do, I do think government's different to to private business in that regard. But I still think there's so many lessons to learn from private industry. Well, I mean, the yeah. other the, the thing that I always like to bring it back to on when when we hit that point is that you know a lot of what a lot of what we do in government is about a lot of what people do in government. I don't work in government is about helping vulnerable populations, um, and there's never enough money to help them. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a massive performance premium that every organisation can generate from better records and information management. I mean, I think there's, you know, 20, 30, 50% in lots of organisations. And there's a real reluctance in some organisations to talk about that. But you know what? If you can reduce the cost of serving someone by 50%, you can serve twice as many people. 
or you can double the level of quality that that service is delivered to people mm. at. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I talk to lots of people in government and a lot of them don't want to talk about efficiency because, you know, it is all about, you know, serving those people effectively. But, you know, I, there's a big program in government over in Australia that helps some vulnerable people. And I remember there's, there's been a big way, uh, change to the way the funding is delivered at the moment. And everyone's talking about how there's not there's not funding there anymore for all of these sort of bits in the middle that they used to do. Well, you know, if you can drop the cost of your service delivery by 25% for the bits that you are being paid for, you, you can kind of afford to do those extra bits. And I think that's the... I, th I think that's the really important bit that people have got to keep their eyes on. You know, it's if we can drop the cost of government delivering a service by 10%, government can deliver 10% more service for the same money. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge gain for everybody who's involved. So I suppose I should probably, I suppose we should probably move on to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, for me, you know, I, I, I like to focus on the fundamental things. Um, you know, and and for me, I, I think there are. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit. I'm gonna get two things in because they're related. Um, but for me, one of them is be really clear on the problem that you're solving, because we make a lot of assumptions, and often we go and talk to someone, and they'll they'll bring us a problem, and we don't. You know, we we kind of work on the face value of that problem. We don't go down a couple of levels deeper to find out. You know what's the actual problem, and what's the actual yeah. what's the problem that it's causing, and you know by doing that we either design a, a a way of solving that problem that just goes back to a a well established pattern that we have, you know, and the oh well you've got a problem with your records, well you've got to, you've got to put it in your EDRMS, and here's your functional classification, and like that's kind of the knee jerk reflex we've got when someone's having a a problem with a specific record, but you know. The, the question that I feel like we should be asking, and this is actually where I started with what I wanted to talk about today, is ask, ask the people you're working with how they will measure success. It's a really simple question, and it's one that can actually, you know, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of five, the five whys idea as a discovery tool, which is just, you know, somebody presents you with a problem, you ask them why, That's, is that a problem? And they tell you, and then you ask them, why, you know, and that can be a little bit more involved in that, you know, it can be, well, what's the impact of that and who does that hurt and all those sorts of things. Five why is a consulting is a consulting technique that, you know, you can find on Wikipedia and in lots of other places. It comes out of, I think it came out of the lean movement and it's really just about understanding, you know, what the root of all of your problems is. But a way that I've found that you can really cut through a lot of that stuff is to just ask people how they'll measure success. And when you, when you ask them how they'll measure success, you're always getting at what they think a good solution looks like. And it will probably surprise you and it will probably require you to think differently. But if we're really clear on the problem we're solving and, who, and how the people we're solving it for will, manage, uh, will measure success, we're probably going to solve the right problem. And if I've seen anything go wrong in records before, it's that we go, you know, people bring us a problem, we give them a, a best practice-based solution and it doesn't deliver success in a way that they were thinking of success because the way they were thinking of success is, well, 
you know, project teams are kind of my favorite thing to talk about. But the way they were thinking about success was they're going to get a project management tool that's going to make them, you know, they've come to you and said, we've got a big problem with organizing our projects. And you've said, well, you need to put all your stuff in a, in an EDRMS and you take it back to them and it's in an EDRMS with with a functional classification. And they're sitting there going, well, we, we thought we were going to get a project management system, you know. And if you just stop and ask them, what does success look like? Mm. How will you measure success? You get to that stuff a lot sooner. Nice. I like it. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'll be honest that I, I went to an interview recently where uh, someone was quizzing me about a potential to do a piece of work and I actually ended up asking them, how will you know if I'm successful? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> which, a good one. Which felt super cheeky, but I was like, you know, um, uh, yeah, just consci- conscious that. of that thing. Of it's like, good. Well, that's really good. Wait, yeah. Wait, what is it that it you... How will you know if I'm successful? I love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that, you're that's... the expert. If you tell me you're successful, then I'll believe it. Great. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, that, you know, and that, I guess that's a risk with consulting services, right, and providing advisory stuff. It's like, well, but, but it's, it's very important, right, to understand what is it you're expecting of me. Yeah. Um, and particularly when it's an advisory position where there's not necessarily an obvious deliverable in the sense of a, you know, here's, here's my document or report or um, spreadsheet, you know, project management system. Um, yeah. Hey, that, that, that question, I've just made a note of it. I'm about to start running a series of workshops on executive engagement, and uh, that's, just, that, that's just made it into the content. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's really <laughs> smart. Um, and, you know, there, there is actually a... There's something that there's a guy named Gary Klein who's done a whole bunch of work on how basically how we solve problems. And one of the one of the most effective techniques he's actually found for um, making sure that your project or program has a success is actually they call it a, a pre-mortem. And the pre-mortem <laughs> is actually sitting down and working it and just saying, look, if this project failed, what would be the things that would be most likely to cause it to fail? And it's actually interesting because I, I, I'm doing a little piece of work with someone at the moment, and they actually I, I've I read I read this guy's work probably five or six years ago, and I've been meaning to do it for five or six years, and I'm doing a little piece of work with someone at the moment. They've obviously read this stuff too. It was the first question they asked me when we after we agreed to go forward with the piece of work. If this is going to fail, how is it going to fail? And it just flips that idea on its head, it actually gets you thinking about all of the worst stuff that could go wrong, all the things that are likely to go wrong. Um, it was a good exercise to go through, actually. But yeah. it just what you said reminded me of that. It's a really um, uh, smart way of to talking about risk, I suppose, you know, like because we, you know, oh, let's do let's do a risk register. They're often really sort of esoteric tedious and, yeah. Yeah, and, and sometimes just a bit hopeless or yeah don't get to the guts of it but i feel like if you were to just sort of ask that kind of question it, it's almost kind of evoking quite an emotional response where you're like oh you know and and maybe yeah. uh, almost giving people the freedom to dish some dirt on you know like oh i think that team will stuff it up or you know or this, yeah. this, this lack of decisiveness over here or these you know like it could get i was going to say could get ugly but i actually mean that is um a, a valuable thing for actually drawing out the you know the, the realities of your context rather than just going oh you know oh 
we might not have enough resources or something, which is the kind of stuff that often ends up in a risk register. And it's like, yes, it is a project. Yes, we know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, we know we're not going to have quite enough resources. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're right, because I think it'll get you to focus down on some of that interpersonal stuff as well. You know, the first mm-hmm. thing you mentioned where I think mm-hmm. these guys will stuff it up and be indecisive. And, you know, this is what this master's I'm doing at the moment. This is exactly what it's about. It's exactly, it's about all those situations where, well, the reason I'm doing it is for all those situations where I've been in teams and we've had all of the right skills in the team and, and, and absolutely enough resources. And for some reason, we just actually can't get it done. And interesting. It's for all those times I've never been able to figure out why exactly that is, but there's something about the interperson, the well, the, the dynamic of the team and the organization that it's in that just means people can't get it done at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Mm. Well, look at it, but not, uh, not a nice you know, result. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so my thing that I was thinking about talking about, um, I was actually saying before we were recording, um, that I think I'm nicking this one from Carl's blog. <laughs> um, and I think but, I nicked it from an information manager named Ros Ball. So, you know, I, I was actually awesome. trying to think about where that one came from. Thank you, Ros. Um, so this is just one example of a really tangible idea that I think could help shift your relationship with the people you're basically working for internally in an organization. And it's just the idea that when new people come on board as part of their standard induction, you go to them and you basically ask them, give them some mechanism, like it might be post-its or whatever, to write down every time they can't find the information they need or they otherwise have trouble getting that information and making use of it. And then to actually then come back to them after a specified time, you know, two weeks, whatever it is, and help them. You know, like like actually talk it through, actually understand what they, um, what the problems are, and what you could do next. And I I, I love that idea because firstly it's really measurable, as in um you know it's kind of a there's no complication about that. It's not like rewriting a strategy or something. It's like cool, I will do this thing. You know, easy commitment. Every time someone shows up, I'll go and do this. Um, obviously depends on the size of your organisation, and it might be the kind of stuff that gets delegated across the team. But you know, it's there. Um, the other thing I really like about it is just that I think it's setting an expectation immediately. So we talked a little bit last time. I was saying a key thing for me that concerns me is um, people feeling that they're not in the role they would like to be, you know, and they they want the role to change. I think this is a, a, a simple and uh, actionable uh, thing you could be doing that might shift the perception of what your role is within an organisation. Because every time a new person arrives, before they've had a chance to go, hmm, you know, I've heard this or that about you or your team or what you do, you can just show up and go, hey, I'm here to help. This is this is how I can help. You know, this is basically the point of my job, scene setting, and, you know, you're delivering. So it's, it's scene setting and a commitment to actually do something. Um, yeah, so uh, I really like it. I really like it. I, I think, think it's it, it, I think it's great for three reasons. The first yeah. one is kind of what you were saying there, Michael. You're showing up, you're showing that you're someone who will help them. So that's good. So this is what we do. We help you. The second one is when you go back again and talk it through, then you're trying to training them to help them do it better themselves in future, I'm thinking. And the third one is you're getting some great feedback on what's easy to do and what isn't easy to do. 
So, yeah, you, you're finding out that all of these people actually can't find whatever, the org yeah. chart. I don't know. Yeah, really simple, but uh, but not unusual. Uh, so you're finding out what, what what's working across a range of people and what isn't, which is also fantastic. Well, yeah. I think it's a great... And, and I think... Um, I was just going to say it connects to what you were saying, Carl, about the kind of idea of, um, uh, you know, how do you, how do you feel successful? Or sorry, I forgot the example yeah. you're using, but that idea on your third point, Judy, the stuff they're going to report back to you is going to be the stuff that matters to them, and so, you know, sort of implicit in what they bother to yeah. talk to you about is is some flavour of what actually matters for this team. Yeah. And yeah. And so I, I think, think that's also really useful insights. Yeah. And I definitely. think over time, I mean, I think it's a great sense making, you know, technique because one of the, I mean, if I look at the, you know, that some of the really, really successful information focused CIOs that I, I know, basically what they do is they go around their organizations and then they, and they collect a whole bunch of problems, things that are slowing the organization down. And then they design a program to address all of those. And a lot of it is by centralizing, you know, bits of that information, you know, delivering specific information systems. But their process always starts with trying to make sense of the challenges that the organization has. And I think this is one, you know, I I think that moment when new starters come in is an absolutely amazing moment to, to start to see I, have you, you? I'm sure you've both been in an organisation where, you know, you, you 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 have a method of solving a problem, um, and it it's a little bit convoluted, but everyone does it, and no one's really sure why. You know, there's a there's a, there's a great there's a there's a Zen there's a Zen koan that that's my absolute favourite of all time to refer back to. And sorry, everybody, we're going to take two minutes for a, a, a little Zen koan. Um, but it's the, there's a so you know there's this Shaolin, there's this temple of you know Shaolin or something like that you know in the mountains somewhere, um, and you know every morning these people come out and and they you know the monks come out and they stand out in front of the temple in the practice yard and they do their martial arts practice. Well, you know one morning they're all doing their martial arts practice and this cat crosses the yard. Anyway, there's absolute pandemonium. You know people are tripping over trying to avoid this cat and someone kicks someone and breaks their arm and you know it's just complete chaos. So anyway, the abbot, you know, thinking quickly, you know, runs over and grabs the cat and ties it to a tree and then practice goes on. Anyway, the next day, you know, practice starts and his cat shows up again. And so before it can cause any damage, the abbot ties the cat to the tree. So every day, cat turns up, they tie this cat to the tree, and then obviously obviously they let it go at the end of practice. Yeah. To be really (laughs) clear about that, we're not committing any, you know, we're protecting the cat here. We're not committing, you know, any crimes. Walls um, were harmed in the course of this koan. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. But, but so, you know, you, you fast forward several years down the track and the abbot dies. And that's okay because the new abbot comes along and, you know, just the cat turns up and the new abbot ties the cat to the tree. Well, you know, then you want to see, you want to hear, see a real disaster. Then the cat dies. And, and they can't practice anymore because they, 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 they they aren't they haven't tied the cat to the tree so they they don't know they're like there's there's chaos because they know that they can't practice now until they tie the cat to the tree so the new abbot thinking quickly runs off to the local market buys a new cat and then they tie the cat to the tree and then they can go on with practice 
and it's a it's a great little story that I that I tell often because <laughs> it just it's just about the power of organizational routines to become entrenched long after they actually serve a purpose. You know, why do we do that thing? And you know, it's I, I think it, there's these you know, particularly in organisations that are growing or have grown, you know, you just end up with these organisational routines that were put in place to solve a problem that either no longer exists or exists, but people have forgotten what the problem is because, you know, the people who put the routine in place to solve it have gone. And I think that moment that a new starter comes in, and this is my very long way of making, you know, getting back to a point that's relevant, um, new starters see see the organisation with fresh eyes you know, they bring in all these expectations about how a job should be done that are based on a different organisation they're working with. And often what they can help us do is point out that, well, in this other organisation, we solve this problem in a straight line, you know, the shortest distance between these two points. And for some reason, you're going off and doing it like this. Mm. And, you know, there's lots of reasons that sort of that little dysfunction can occur. You know, sometimes it's political stuff inside the organisation. You know, there was somebody occupying a role who had power beyond something or there was someone in a role who wasn't quite competent and so, you know, people were trying to go around them. But they can help us see a lot of that stuff. And I think that's I think that's one of those problems of, you know, you, you, you get in this is actually something that, you know, so if, you know, I, I sell so I sell records management software for a living. And one of the things that you realize after you've been through a few organizations is that you are absolutely incapable of seeing your own product once you've been in the organization for more than about three weeks because you actually start to buy into the internal beliefs about that product. And organizations are exactly the same. You know, when you go into a new records management unit or a new information management unit or whatever it is, you know, you can only see the the bits of practice that are broken or that don't work or don't deliver for, you know, at best a couple of months. And then as long as you actually last in the organization, you actually start to become a part of that team's culture. And culture is all about how you solve problems and get work done. And so before you know it, the internal logic of that team and organization is in your head and you just operate in it and it seems normal and anything different seems like it's not part of your organization. So there's actually only a really short time where you can actually see that stuff. And new starters are just absolute gold for helping you see the organization with fresh eyes. And that was a really long-winded way of making what was supposed to be quite a short point. Well done. It's <laughs> a good point. It's a for good eventually point. stopping. That's a good point. <laughs> But all of these things that we're saying is about talking to, or not quite all, but most of these things we're saying is about talking to people, isn't it? Yeah. Everything we've said, how do we involve the users? How do we listen to them? How do we understand what their problems, issues really are, really are? Mm, for sure. But, for but sure. I mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's where, you know, I think it's where the action is. You know, I mean, my my, my blog, yeah. you know, my blog's been around for about three years now, and you know, I I almost never touch on technical stuff because I wouldn't try and tell. You know, there are the the number of people in records management that have a better technical understanding. I mean, I'm on a podcast with two people who have got more technical expertise than I'll ever have. Um, 
and you know the number of people in the industry that have that much you know a lot more technical expertise than me is practically all of them but where i see most of the the challenges that we have in records they're not the technical things you know we've got technical expertise we've got more technical expertise than we ever ne- than we will ever need but where 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 stuff breaks is in how we apply that technical expertise to an environment that has people in it and running away here because really this is just bringing us back to why we did a bunch of episodes about the people stuff right like, yeah. You know, yeah it's really it is it is where the action's at as you say yeah but, but it is interesting isn't it i mean because we you know I, I think we we did that set of episodes on the people stuff and now we've we're almost trying to get away from that and move and move forward onto the next thing but we do keep coming it's back hard. to people <laughs> challenges because yeah. that's where the the problems of records management are not the technical things, you know, the technical things are, I mean, really, what what are most of the technical problems we have? Well, we know that a system integration there would would actually solve that problem, but we can't get the budget for it. You know, I mean, they're the sorts of technical problems we deal with. We know that there's a technical problem there. We just can't get enough money to solve it. Um, but the people stuff, you know, how do we get I people? Think, um- I think we've also really emphasized an angle of helping those people, right? Like, yeah, you, know, you can frame that as internal customers or whatever way you want to yeah. talk about it. But, I hate that um, analogy. I know, I know, I hate it as well. Um, Some, well somebody, also, somebody, I was on about a... government talking about external customers as well. It's like, oh yeah, hmm. I, I was on a. <laughs> Sometimes I, that's a bit ridiculous. Anyway, I was on a sem- I was on a session with somebody recently. I've been trying to get a good analogy for you know why the customer analogy is a problem. Um, and I was on a, I was on a pod, uh, not a podcast. I was on a sort of international get together with some people recently, and one of these guys, who's a, he's a fantastic consultant, um, w- was talking about this, and he was talking about parking, and he said, you know, well, when when your local council, you know, thinks about you as a, as a stakeholder or an investor in the local council or or a resident that you know you want to succeed with. You know, you think about parking in a very different way to what you're thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about people as customers, because if people are customers, well, you want to charge them for parking and you want to make sure that, you know, you get as much money from them for that parking as you possibly can because, yeah. you know, they're yeah. customers. Yeah. But, you know, when you're thinking about people as stakeholders, you know, or, or whatever your better analogy than customers is, you start to think about their experience of the council district that you're in and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, he, I've got to go back to him actually and just get him to walk me through it again so I can write it down. But Mm -mm. it was just a really nice, clear analogy about why the customer analogy is so bad. You know, I think there's obviously there is some, a problem with everything, you know, is you try to emphasize one thing so you can get people to move in that direction. And then you get to the problem, the point where that emphasis becomes a problem and you've got to go in another direction. But the customer one, I think, is a challenge, and it's and it's it's very opposite for me at the moment because an organisation that I work for has so many different definitions of the word customer that that is a real real problem for them. Ouch! <laughs> Gee, well, it sounds like we're getting back to the problem of having a single source of the truth, and ah, uh... oh, doesn't it just? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wouldn't that be great? And some shared meaning. It's the people yep. stuff. All over again. Yep. All over again. Yeah. Well, it's also. I mean, uh, it's also. Um, uh, it's basically. It's modelling. It's it's information it's architecture. Modeling. It is. <laughs> and it's, it is. Uh, you know. 
it's a, it's a really uh, well. It starts with information. clear example yeah. of how yeah. you know you know the old the map is not the territory idea. You know the idea that you're always slapping a some kind of a model over what you're trying to do or what's actually real. Uh, and, and you know, it's just one example of that. And and the 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 model that you choose to slap on top is going to change how you think about what you're doing and yeah, what it is that you do do. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but something, I can't remember who it was who said no model is perfect, but all models are, are useful. George, George Box. Yeah. Right. All, all, right. All, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. That's that's it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, right. I really like it. Yeah. There's yeah. actually a um, – there's another guy too, uh, um, Michael Polanyi, who, you know, is one of these knowledge people. You know, he wrote a book called Personal Knowledge about – God, it's got to be 70 or 80 years ago. But there's a point that he makes in that book, which has always stuck with me too. He talks about probes and systems and um, essentially what it comes down to is that whatever you probe your system with, and great, great terminology, um, but, but what it, whatever you use to probe your system reflect how you'll see that system. And I think that's worth keeping in mind too, because when you if you go and probe a system with your knowledge as a records manager, you tend to see records management problems. When you look at it as a knowledge manager, right. you tend to see knowledge management problems, you know, because I always focus on the interpersonal stuff. You know, I see challenges of organisational routine. You know, I mean, we, we started to talk about the absence of a shared definition as, a, as an information architecture problem. But, you know, for me, that's all about how you establish organisational routines so that you've got shared, so that you can share that meaning. You know, starts with a, and you know, what am I studying? You know, I'm studying stuff that's all about organizational routines and interpersonal dynamics. And, you know, so that's the lens I'm seeing it through. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I reckon for the sake of our dearest <laughs> listeners, <laughs> I think we've, we've achieved what we were here to do. <laughs> but I mean, there's always so much more to talk about. Um, yeah. So, Thank you to you both, and thank you to everyone out there who's listening. Um, I hope you got some useful things out of that. Um, and if there's any specifics that you'd like to ask us about, then obviously please do. Um, we will continue with this kind of theme of, well, how do you actually make change or how could things be better? Uh, and thank you once again. See you. Bye. <laughs>